Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. As part of Blue Dot's partnership with our friends at Bruntwood, we're curating a series of special in-conversations at Bruntwood venues across the country, hosted by me, Chris Hawkins. The first of these recently took place featuring Tom Heap, the author and writer behind 39 Ways to Save the Planet and a regular fixture on Countryfile. We spoke with Tom to a live audience at Bruntwood's Bright Building at Manchester Science Park. And you can now enjoy the live recording on the Blue Dot podcast. For more information about Blue Dot in conversation, powered by Bruntwood, visit discovertheblue.com slash in conversation. Please now join me in welcoming to the stage Tom Heap. <laughs> Tom, why 39? <laughs> 39, it is a completely bogus number, I'll come right out there and, and, and admit. Um, however, it was a balance between a plausible number of programmes we could get away with on Radio 4, and we were sort of groping for a figure, and there is this figure that we emit mankind, humankind, emits 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent or thereabouts of the atmosphere every year. And so I lighted on that, I thought, ah, oh, 40, 40, that, 40 ways to save the planet, etc., etc. And... Um, then the, the controller of Radio 4, a man much smarter than me, said, make it an odd number. It makes people lean in. And I guess it makes people ask questions like you just did. So I think he was right. <laughs> For sure. Um, you make very clear, don't you, on the podcast and in the book, that we made the mess that the planet is in, but that we can also fix it. What would you say is the single biggest change that needs to be made? Well, the first thing I'm going to, while, while I uh, think about the answer, I'm going to, I'm going to resort to the, you know, it, it's not a magic bullet, it's magic buckshot, as they say. So it really is a lot of solutions um, that need to come together. I think the biggest one is decarbonizing energy generation. I mean, energy generation lies behind so much of the things that we then do with it, fairly obviously. But if we can do that, and that's also where some of the most uh, realistic happening changes are going on right now. It also seems some of the lower hanging fruit to me. And I think that is really, really important that a lot of this is about expanding stuff that's already there rather than going to the blue sky and inventing something new. I mean, we, we toyed for a long time with whether we were going to put nuclear fusion in, 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 in the series and in the book. In, in the end, that I didn't because... It's kind of always 15, 20 years away, or probably more than that, actually, 25, 30 years away. Now I'd love it if it, if, if it happened. And someone came up with the phrase, not me, that when it comes to climate change solutions, now is better than new. Both are good, but now is better. So accelerating things that are already working is great. Is now an emergency? Yes, there is an emergency. I think there is an emergency. Some people... Actually, if you sort of go and look up the definition of an emergency, then almost something as, as slow in decades as this, and the, well, arguably centuries, been going on since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, cannot sort of be considered an emergency. I think it's an emergency in that, you know, it's like, the, it's like the, the person falling out of a building and before they hit the ground saying, so far, so good, you know. <laughs> and there is a moment when we're going to hit the ground, and we're, we're, getting very close, we're getting closer to the ground in that case. We'll get into the detail of the book in a while. The podcast led to the book with a foreword by Arnold Schwarzenegger. How did that come about? 
So, um, why Arnold Schwarzenegger? The real reason for that is I was, a, I was aware that he'd done some very interesting things and very positive things in regard to the environment and climate change when he was governor of California, which a lot of people don't know. Even a lot of people who are quite well-versed in, in, in environment stuff don't know this. They just know him from the bodybuilding and the movies and the politics. Um, and I deliberately wanted to get someone who was a bit unexpected because the whole point of this book, whether I've succeeded or not, the whole point of this book was to slightly reach beyond the converted in climate change by sort of um, bringing in maybe a new audience by the fact, and I think you're going to talk about this, that it, 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 it's relatively uh, upbeat in a way, it's kind of excited about what's out there, and I was trying to reach the parts that climate podcasts and indeed climate-related books hadn't reached in the past. So I thought he, with his... Yes, he, come, he comes from the right, although a very centre-right. He had massive spats with Donald Trump when Trump was, uh, was president. And the fact that he came from that side, and, yeah, not everyone agrees with this. In fact, I don't entirely agree with it, but he's very much on the, you know, envir- solving climate change isn't about giving up stuff. You know, that's, you can argue that he's wrong in some respects. But he, he's certain, what I like about it is he doesn't, he says that we shouldn't put sacrifice in the shop window because you ain't going to sell it if you do that. And so that's why How was basically a nine-month-to-a-year fishing trip. Of, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And, is it gonna, and we did eventually get the forward, and then we got an interview as well. It's a lengthy forward, isn't it? Yeah, he, I was really impressed. It was a, it was a really weird um, three or four days when I heard that he was going to do it, and then it kind of arrived, and I thought, well, it's just going to be a sort of bolt-on, you know, stamped-on sort of celebrity forward. I hoped it wouldn't be, but he clearly engaged with it, um, with, with what's there, and, and it, it really... I've felt really, really excited about it as a result. It's uh, the book also a partnership with the Royal Geographical Society. Mm. Why was that partnership important for you? Two reasons. I'm a geographer by background. That's actually my degree. And um, I always think geography gets a bit of a bad press in the wider media. You know, it's all those distas, you know, um, you know, the uh, geography teacher fashion or whatever. It's always taken as an excuse to slightly bash an academic subject. And I wanted, I mean, I needed some academic heft behind it because I'm a journalist I'm not an academic I wanted that kind of foundation strength behind it because I can be in my enthusiasm a little hand wavy about things um yeah you know it'll be right it's roughly that you know and (laughs) so I, I needed a bit of academic discipline and so the Royal Geographical Society and with the podcast, at least, in uh, conjunction with uh, my presenter colleague, Tamsin Edwards, you know, made sure that there was some scientific rigour so I didn't get away with too much uh, wishful thinking. Let's talk about the start of uh, your media career and your background after leaving university. Where were you then? After you leaving university, well, my first passion was, was movies, actually, which probably partly explains why Arnie's in there as well as a, as a person. You know, I, I thought, oh, I'm going you know, to produce movies or something, was, was what I thought I wanted to do. And I still love, still absolutely love movies. That's my, my, you know, my passion. I still have a room full of Blu-rays and things like that. Um, and so I got various jobs in, in Soho trying to work in films, then ended up working uh, for Sky News, uh, first of all as a postboy, office postboy, and then as a, a sound man. Um, for, so for three years, I you know, ran around with one of those big boom mics, 
um, various places in the in the early 90s, and then got a job uh, or got a training scheme at the BBC, and then when sort of got bitten by journalism when I was at Sky. And one of the things I'd say for Sky is I had that great kind of Australian all hands on deck, you know, give it a go, mate, kind of place. So if you wanted to show an aptitude for something, they'd, they'd let you have a go at it, which is great. It's really good. And the BBC trainee scheme, that was to become a BBC journalist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I did um, various jobs in the BBC, um, Today program producer, so I did the... Uh, uh, getting up in the morning, well, actually not getting up in the morning, being up all night. Uh, unlike, I think that's probably easier than what you do, to have to get up <laughs> early in the morning. Um, neither are fun. And neither are fun. So overnight producing for the Today programme and then did a series of um, reporting jobs, transport correspondent, science and environment correspondent, rural affairs correspondent, and then I left news to do the longer form stuff that I do now. They were big jobs, big, big, hefty BBC jobs. Well, I absolutely loved them. I mean, I loved all those. I loved all those roles. Uh, my first, <laughs> you say big, my very first day of being a science and environment correspondent was where they cracked the human genome. And the Human Genome Project, you may remember, it was a massive science political roll-in. There was a joint announcement between Downing Street and Washington all about this. And that was literally my first day, was standing in Downing Street doing a scientific live about the human genome, thinking, am I going to go for a list of ingredients for life, or is it a recipe for life? Which am I going to go for here, and how am I going to make it make sense? Uh, please don't ask me any follow-up questions on genetics, because that's, <laughs> that's been pushed away. I wonder if there are parallels between being a correspondent and an MP, because you talked about the different correspondent jobs that you had. A little like a politician, an MP, being a minister for a different area, and having to become a specialist quite quickly in that field yeah I think there's that sort of tradition that goes as you say in being an MP or you know being in the foreign office or arguably being a being a journalist there's a sort of respected I wouldn't say amateurism but you're you're expected to sort of pick things up and that the justification for that is that certainly with journalism it's as much about being able to explain it to those you know, to everyone out there who isn't an expert, or 99% of people who aren't an expert in the particular subject you're doing, as it is about knowing the subject. So being able to empathise through experience with, you know, knowing what it's like not to know all about this subject is very important as well. And getting that balance right is critical. And, and that's why with, you know, foreign correspondents, they often move around, um, uh, you know, move around different countries, as you say. Um, even within news, you know, people will move from being medical to, to science to, to health. And I, I think neither is right. I think it's good to have some absolute specialists and, and some others who move around. And what kind of qualifications do you think you had as a rural affairs correspondent? Um, slightly limited, actually, the truth is. So when I got the job as rural affairs correspondent, which is in the mid-noughties, um, at that stage, so it was a newly created job, and it was all around the time of the... Um, countryside marches and the fox hunting bands and all these kind of things. And the BBC rightly felt that it wasn't getting rural affairs quite right. It was too often, in fact, quite literally, they sometimes sent their foreign correspondents to report on stuff in the British countryside, which isn't a great look. So they realised that they weren't really understanding it very well, they weren't really relating it very well, um, 
Why did they appoint me? I, I think they thought... I mean, I was living in Brixton at the time, which was hardly particularly rural. Um, I think they thought I had an empathy for it. They gave me through a trial period. I was excited by it. And it's turned out to be a great patch for journalism. There is so much out there, be it, you know, nature and climate change like I'm doing now or stuff to do with farming and food policy and food production or to do with planning or, or to do with, you know, energy generation. And, you know, there's just so much animal welfare. There's so many meaty topics, you pardon the pun, to get your teeth into. And how did you get the Country File gig? Because <laughs> it's one of the BBC's biggest shows. I was really lucky. I, I, would, I had done it occasionally as John Craven's substitute. So I used to do it when he wasn't there. But he was always there. He never took a holiday, hardly, and he was never ill. He was so fit. Um, so uh, I'd, I'd done it about you know, two or three times a year for about two years. And then he decided to take a step back from doing the investigations, as they call them, the more journalistic part of Country File. As you know, he's still involved in the program, but he decided to take a step back from that because it is quite a sort of, you know, regular, tough beat, a hell of a lot of travel involved in it, and I'm as much of an expert in tarmac as I am in anything to do with fields. Um, And uh, when he took that step, I was just in the right place at the right time. And do you think it was that job, doing Country File, which you still do, that gave you the opportunity to become a key voice uh, as an environmentalist? There's no doubt that it gives you a bit of recognition, although I am frequently mistaken for Adam Henson. By the way, I'm not the farmer one. I'm the other one. Um, that happens a lot. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, it gives, you, it gives you recognition, and I think uh, with that, you know, it comes uh, you know, a, a, a certain amount. You know, you know, that opens a few doors. And I think the authority perhaps comes as much from, you know, the radio for the Costing the Earth, the environment series that I've done there that I've been doing for 10 years plus. Do you think that um, with Country Farm, the focus of the programme has changed less so about farming methods, for example, and more so about our future? Well, farming methods and our future are very closely linked, actually, so that's not an either-or. I mean, Country File is a very broad palette of what happens in the countryside. And I think that's great. So it should be. Um, Some farmers sometimes complain that it's not enough about farming. But hell, it's appealing to, at its height, um, you know, six to seven million people on a Sunday night. That that has got to be a broad palette. And yeah, sometimes it's about those things. And we have, you know, I'm enormously proud that we put stuff on that show about soil science to 7 million people or about farmer depression and suicide to 7 million people. You know, we are getting some rarely heard issues to a very large group of people. And yes, to answer your question, I'd say in the last four to five years it has got a more of an environment and climate change slant, but so it should do because that's not only an important issue, but it's becoming more important within farming. So you're seeing you know, farmers being paid to store carbon or farmers being paid to plant trees. Or, you know, so it, it's very much and the whole way they're farming, and not least at the moment uh, when fertiliser is so expensive, the whole way they're farming is potentially becoming a carbon sink rather than a carbon source. And there's a chapter about that in the book. What specifically inspired the book? A feeling that having spent by then probably close to 20 years in reporting the environment, that whilst I didn't doubt for a minute, as you said at the start, the seriousness and urgency of 
the climate challenge. Many people that I'd met who were working on solutions, delivering solutions, and the excitement and novelty of what they were coming up with, the simple newness of that, the sort of tell me something I didn't know, wasn't being adequately reflected in the, in the wider media. And a, a feeling that there's a great story of redemption here, as you said, we've caused the problem, but we can put it right, and we are putting it right, not nearly fast enough, but we are putting it right. I felt that, you know, redemption stories are, are great stories, full stop. There was an element of tell me something I didn't know, which I think is really important, and I just think it's just such an exciting area. I mean, I, I kind of slightly step back from the, are you an optimist, are you a pessimist? I'm excited by what's happening, and I hope that comes across both in the series and in the book. In the introduction, indeed, you say, we can save the world, we can save the world. It's a bold and confident claim that you really do believe. Yep, yeah, I do. I mean, we're not, we're not on the, we haven't come up with the right recipe yet, or certainly not cooking the right recipe yet. Um, but I, I, I think, uh, came back to my metaphor earlier, I think we now know quite a lot of the ingredients. And, you know, it's about, I mean, one of the things I, I, I think I conclude with is, you know, we have the ways we need to find the will. Do you think that, for example, during the pandemic, the daily briefings, we were listening to scientists, perhaps for many of us, for the first time on a regular basis... Do you think that what we need to do is actually a simple solution to a very complex problem? Is there one single no, great no, solution? There is not one simple great solution. Uh, it is about... Solving this is really... A, there's mainly four legs to this. Still, there is, there is science, invention, discovery. There is political will. There is public clamour. And not just public clamour, but public willingness to not necessarily sacrifice, but to change, to think about doing things in a different way. And then there are companies as well. So if you can get all those four things, so business, politics, science, public, moving in the same direction, that's when you get things going in the right way. And we're a bit sort of one step moves forward and one reluctantly follows and then the other so you know it's a stumble in the right direction rather than a flow in the right direction at the is moment. any one of those most important i mean i think i will i think i probably would say science and invention now a lot of people will step back from that and say oh you know there's there's no technological fix to that and that that's true up to a point but if we look at where the advances have been made you know, solar and wind massive advances. They haven't really involved a lot of people in having to think hard about this. Yes, there have been some political decisions that have sort of primed the pump to get them going in the right direction and some investment decisions as well. But it's mainly about coming up with the, the ability to do it in the first place. But actually, funnily enough, that illustrates why it's very complicated because in that case, you needed science and business because science makes the invention and business makes it cheap in the end by doing enough of it. So you do need both. To use those two examples, solar and wind sort of solutions, but both really flawed. In the sense that they're intermittent. Yes. Yeah, hugely. <laughs> uh, wind particularly. Ah, I don't think wind... I mean, they, 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 in a funny way, they're quite compatible, actually, because often when it's sunny, it's um, not windy and vice versa. But yeah, I mean, hugely... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say flawed because they, you know, they're flawed as single solutions. Yes, of course they're flawed. Uh, but 
you know, there are, the ways of getting around the, the intermittency are very wide networks, so great, inter, great interconnectivity, as broad a pool as those things you, as you can have. Energy storage, which is still, I'd say, in its infancy. And I do think that because renewable energy was a bit... Um, it was almost trying to hide the fact that you're talking about. We should have been building up storage technology as fast as we were building up renewable technology, and we didn't really. We've had kind of almost a generation of building up renewable technology, and only now we're building up um, uh, storage, and that's a shame. Storage has got to come up quick. I mean, there are some really interesting ideas out there, not just batteries, but all sorts of you know, gravity storage, compressed air storage, gas storage, all sorts of different ways of storing energy. But the reason, the logic that you point out is why nuclear energy is in my book. Because some people may disagree, but I find a low-carbon future more plausible with some element of nuclear in it. And how likely is it that will be pursued vigorously, would you say? Well, in this country, it's looking increasingly likely. I mean, the uh, energy policy that came out, what was it, about two weeks ago, which was in many ways... Uh, very, very poor and underwhelming and a missed opportunity. The one thing it it did back strongly um, was nuclear energy. Now, (laughs) the trouble with nuclear energy uh, is is it um, takes a hell of a long time to deliver, whereas if they'd taken the brakes off, personally, my feeling is things like onshore wind, you know, we could have been delivering a lot more quickly. But I, I think nuclear as a result of climate change and now as a result of the uh, greater threat to oil and gas supplies through the, the war in Ukraine, uh, I think it, uh, its stocks are up, I would say. The idea of nuclear power does strike fear, doesn't it, to sections of the public? Sections of the public, yes, it does. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it's difficult to overcome that because a lot of it is, is, is very, very primal. It's always very interesting, I think, to look at... Well, fear itself is a... I mean, you could... Taking us off on a bit of a tangent here, but fear itself is, is a very difficult thing to, to understand. So if you take what happened in Japan, people think of that as a nuclear disaster. It wasn't a nuclear disaster. Tens of thousands of people died as a result of a tidal wave, something we know, something that happened that was a terrible, terrible killer of people. A handful of people have died as a result of the radiation at Fukushima. But it's because of the sort of unknown. Nuclear is all about fear of the unknown. And that is something that's very, very difficult to temper. Here in the UK the support for nuclear grows the closer to a nuclear power station you get. Which makes me think that we come back to the politics involved in making any big significant changes. The government needs to back nuclear. Yeah, but there's actually across political parties, there's a fair amount of consensus about nuclear now. Um, So there isn't, in this country, there isn't a big political anti-nuclear lobby. And I find it interesting that in Germany, where there is a very big political anti-nuclear lobby, I find that quite intriguing because as a result of that, they ended up with more coal, terrible for climate change, and resting on Putin. Look where that got them. So nuclear is a tick, yes. For me, yes, but I you know, accept that a lot of people do disagree. Uh, solar? Definitely. 
Wind? Definitely. What else? Well, that's the thing. It, it's not a question of either or. We need so many of these things. I'm not going to put a break on any of them. I mean, tidal would be great because it's predictable, but it's still expensive. But that, you know, with investment, you could maybe bring that down. I don't think we're ever going to um, uh, get a vast amount from it just because the, the, the tidal resources, the places in the country where it's applicable are relatively small. Um, globally, geothermal is a, a very big deal. Explain geothermal. So geothermal is basically using the heat that's within the earth that you see coming to the surface in the form of volcanoes. In a lot of places, that heat is quite close to the surface. So you take the African Rift Valley, for instance, there's quite a lot of geothermal there already. There could be a lot more that's actually generating. Um, so you basically use it to turn water into steam and then drive a turbine, just like you would in a, in a conventional power station, but you're using the heat of the earth to do it. Um, so that's a very big one. But I think there are, there are, the other big one is... I just mentioned solar, solar thermal as well, which is using the sun to create heat as well as electricity, which is a slightly underused technology and incredibly effective for many industrial processes. And uh, the other thing is energy conservation. We, know we need to get so much better at saving it. And that is a, that is a very big deal. Uh, it really is. So what's your advice day to day then for a, a household? How do you do that? Yeah, my advice for a household would be, first of all, look at your whether you could save energy. And yeah, that means, have you thought about getting a pressure cooker? Have you thought about thermal underwear? It does mean those things. That may sound weird, but it does. You can cook something in a third of the time in a pressure cooker. Have you thought about the energy you are using to cook and could you combine things? Do you really need to heat all the rooms in the house? Have a think about these things. And I think it's weird, slightly weird, the way that the whole culture is almost that we can't talk about those kind of things anymore. I mean, some of the energy companies got absolutely scorched on social media for saying that, you know, people should, um, I can't remember if it was, you know, think about buying a slanket or um, wear a pair of woolly socks. I can't remember which it was, but it wasn't actually that dumb. I mean, it's difficult for them when someone will say, oh, well, your chief executive earns, you know, X million and he's got a house in the Maldives, so what, how are you to lecture me? You very quickly get into that. But nevertheless, it's sensible advice. So energy saving is definitely one of them. If you are lucky enough to have enough money to spend on things like solar panels, then do it. They're quite cheap now. Yeah, you don't get very much, you don't get basically anything back for the government for putting them in. But when they used to cost about 15000 to install, they now cost about 4000 for the same amount, and you get quite a lot of money back. Uh, the return on the investment is still relatively slow, isn't it? Um, not now. The energy prices have gone up a lot. No, it's, it, well, whatever it was, it's come twice as quick. The <laughs> energy firms, there's a huge onus on them. It's an expensive idea for them changing completely their methods, their ways. But there is a huge onus on energy companies to save the planet. I think there is, but they have to do it with us. I mean, and this was what I was so disappointed with the government's energy policy the other day. Because it was a chance, with the big scary bear of Putin out there, and with rising prices, to say, we've got to engage with this. Yeah, let's go on a journey that's partly about saving, it's partly about new forms of supply, it's partly yeah, a little bit of disruption to your to your lifestyle maybe, 
But this is important. You know, this is something we're going to have to do. And I think the energy companies are part of that. And one of the things they are um, trying to move us towards, move towards is a bit more hydrogen in the gas grid. I didn't mention hydrogen in my previous uh, discussion of what might help. But hydrogen in the gas grid as, uh, as opposed to natural gas. Because when you burn hydrogen or combine hydrogen to make energy, you just combine hydrogen with oxygen and you get water, not any carbon emissions. Let's come back to the rural affairs, I guess. The global population is expected to reach 10 billion by 2050, Mm -hmm. 10 billion. How do we feed the world sustainably? Uh, In some ways, that's what my next book's about. Um, (laughs) So I'm writing a book provisionally entitled Land Smart, which is how we use our land. Um, We feed them sustainably by putting proper effort, intelligence, and research into more sustainable biological agricultural methods. By that I mean getting off the crutch of chemical fertilizer and chemical treatment in terms of herbicides and pesticides and things like that, which I think has to be a transition because it's not sustainable, certainly in the, in the fertilizer point. We need to waste much less in two senses, which is, A, there's a, a lot of what human waste, quite literally in terms of our sewage, is a fantastic fertilizer resource that is able to be used far more than we do now. All sorts of waste streams could be made into fertilizers, more than just spreading you know, night soil on the field, a much more sophisticated way of doing it. Once again, we, we talk about that in the book, about how to make uh, fertilizer. So we need to become much more smart about how we produce. There was a a phrase for a while that was called sustainable intensification, which a lot of people thought was a contradiction in terms. It was like virginal pregnancy. Uh, But actually, I thought the idea behind it was quite a good one, which is that there are ways of trying to bring the knowledge of what we have now about more regenerative, more nature-friendly forms of farming. Yeah, those are great, but they also need to produce a lot. Because if they don't produce a lot, we'll just rip up more Amazon and drain more marshes and, you know, dig into more wild land, and that's a really bad idea. And the the final two things, I mentioned waste. The other is waste a lot less food. So we roughly globally, we waste about a third of what we grow. In the richer world, that waste tends to come from our kitchens and our houses. In the poorer world, that tends to come from waste before it gets to people's homes so there's no cold, there's an inadequate cold chain as they call it, so it basically perishes before it ever reaches the shops. So wasteless, and yes, the other big one is eat less meat because meat is a relatively inefficient converter of calories delivered from the sun into calories delivered into flesh, so less meat, I won't say no meat. And for the day job, how are farmers reacting to you with thoughts like that? Um, I think in this country at least, they kind of know that the days of the sort of high chemical dependent fertilizer, high chemically dependent farming, those days are numbered. I think they know that. And I think what they like about, I was going to say my message, that sounds terribly pompous, I don't really have a message, but I do respect yield. I do respect someone who grows a lot of food off a small space, all other things being equal. Because I think that is incredibly important in terms of not taking wild land 
under the plough or under the cow. What we have to do is learn how to produce that large amount of food without a footprint of climate change, chemical pollution, air pollution, water pollution, and people are beginning to do that. That is beginning to happen. But the anxiety, uh, I would imagine, and you will get this from personal experience talking to farmers up and down the land, that it's the expense, however much the desire is there, there's huge investment required for them. Yes, there is, there is investment in that change, but um, there, is, I mean, there is some policy help. I mean, there's a lot of uh, sort of problems with the detail of the way the government's new um, environmental land management scheme is set out, but they are trying to reward farmers for doing more of these so-called public goods. So there is some help in that sense. And... The other thing is, you know, they're, they're finding, most farmers will tell you kind of, and this is odd in itself, but the least um, profitable thing they can do with their land is often to grow food with it. I was at a guy, with a guy actually quite close to here, um, Merseyside way, outskirts of Liverpool near kind of Hale, who grew some maize and some sunflowers. And within, I think, of two months of having a maize in the maize and a maize in the sunflowers, he had earned close to £100,000 off charging people to come into that maize. Now, he gave half of it to charity because he's a very nice guy. It both excited me and saddened me because that's a massive multiple of what I could ever have got for the food that's growing out there. So, I mean, this is possibly a separate story, but I do think we vastly undervalue food, and it's a tough thing to say, I know, when some people can't, uh, you know, struggle to afford it. But I think we have evolved an economic and social economic system that expects to pay very little for food, and I don't really think that's sustainable. One of the uh, more unusual ideas in the book is around bamboo. Can you explain? Bamboo is a very fast-growing, very rapid form of natural carbon capture and storage. So just like growing wood, we've got here making our stage, um, you could do all this with bamboo, and bamboo grows even faster than wood and is appropriate for some areas where you can't grow forests. That's, in many ways, that's it. And um, you can make an awful lot out of bamboo, these are made out of bamboo. <laughs> These socks. Mine too. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> bamboo foot twins. Um, uh, you can do a, yeah. You can do a lot with it. And there's you know there are particular um, there's a particular organisation we, we each feature called Bamboo Villages who are trying to create you know a thousand uh, communities surrounded. I think it's by twenty kilometres squared. Forgive me, I can't quite remember. Anyway, um, around villages which have mixed bamboo and other forms of agriculture. And it's an accessible way, an entry-level way, especially for um, smaller-scale landowners and farmers to get into the whole carbon capture world. And it's, it's potentially very big, especially on what's called degraded land, of which there is a lot uh, around the world, particularly in tropical regions, warmer regions. Uh, am I right in saying that in the book you, you, you 
Basically, do you not say that there's nothing that can't be made out of bamboo? Almost nothing that can't be made out of bamboo. And really, I mean, they, uh, there's so many fibers, so many, so many um, you know, solid, solid items. You know, the, we looked around this guy's office and virtually everything he had uh, in there, from, from cups to tables to chairs to, to clothing to oh, computer cases, phone cases, you know, you name it, it can be made out of bamboo. What's the most incredible find in doing your research for the book? I think I will, I'm going to use this. In fact, I'm going to use this slightly in reverse. <laughs> so, no, the most incredible find, or the most surprising thing to me, is this thing about refrigerant gases. So, refrigerant gases are the ones that are in your fridge, in your freezer, in your air conditioner, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There are a lot of them are CFCs, HCFCs. You've probably heard of them a few years back and the whole whole of the ozone layer kind of thing, uh, so-called Montreal Protocol to reduce them. They are very bad. Uh, if they let to escape, they're very bad in terms of damaging the ozone layer, which helps to protect us from the sun's UV rays. What's lesser known to the public about them is some of them are the most extraordinarily potent greenhouse gases. So the worst one, which is now... Uh, outlawed throughout the world um, is um, 12,000 times as potent as carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. So what that means is that there are canisters of this stuff still in existence, often in dumps and yards around the world, that are corroding and are emitting these gases into the atmosphere. So a a two-litre bottle of this gas, two kilograms, is the equivalent of drive if 20 tons of carbon dioxide, which is many, many annual mileages from a car. So a single canister of that stuff rotting is the weapons of mass destruction of climate change. If those are those escaping, that's why an organ, another organization, not mine, a thing called Project Drawdown, which has listed all the climate solutions in order of importance, says preventing these refrigerant gases from reaching the atmosphere is the single most important thing we can do. You mentioned cars. Are we ready for electric vehicles? If everyone went electric tomorrow, no. But I think it's probably ready. It it can evolve quickly enough. Uh, I think it's one of those push-me-pull-you kind of things. You know, They're not going to put in a whole load of points until people are there ready to use them. Are they our worldwide transport solution? I think public transport and bicycles are a worldwide transport solution. Um, But I think cars, electric cars, will be a very important part of that solution. Tom, thanks so much. You've been inspiring. Thank you so much to Tom Heap for joining us today. Please show your appreciation for Tom Heap, our guest this afternoon at Bruntwood's Bright Building. And copies of Tom's book are available in the information section of the podcast site at uh, discovertheblue.com. Blue Dot is, of course, back this July, and I hope you can join us at Jodrell Bank for our return this summer for fantastic days of music, science, and culture. Weekend and day tickets are on sale now at discovertheblue.com, and you can also find out more about the VIP Village which is powered by our friends at Brubwood at discovertheblue.com slash VIP. See you in July, and thank you for being here. Thank you once again, Tom Heap. Thank you, Chris.
You've been listening to the Blue Dot Podcast, featuring Tom Heap in conversation, powered by Bruntwood. For more information about Blue Dot in conversation, powered by Bruntwood, visit discovertheblue.com slash in conversation. Blue Dot returns to Jodrell Bank this July for a long-awaited weekend of music, science and cosmic culture, featuring Bjork, Groove Armada, Mogwai, Metronomy and Hannah Peel, science headliners Tim Peake and Jim Al-Khalili and much, much more. Day and weekend tickets are on sale now. Explore the weekend at discovertheblue.com. Listener.